Chapter 15 of A History of Astronomy. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. A History of Astronomy by Walter W. Bryant. Chapter 15 Observatories and Instruments. The next division of the subject is that of observatories and instruments. We have noted the foundation of the early national observatories and in later times the impetus given to private effort by discoveries in the heavens, in particular those of Herschel in descriptive astronomy. Astronomy is so obviously a practical application of mathematics that it is bound to receive recognition at most universities, where private munificence has, in general, been the only source available for providing the necessary buildings and instruments. It is to this source that much of the progress in America may be attributed, in the States, observatories are numbered by hundreds, many attached to universities and colleges, but known almost better in some cases by the name of the founder. We may instance, as those most widely known, the Lick Observatory of the University of California at Mount Hamilton, and the Yerkes Observatory of the University of Chicago at Williams Bay, Wisconsin. Harvard College Observatory is a partial exception, inasmuch as Harvard founded the whole and not the observatory only. And there are other examples. The U.S. Naval Observatory at Washington, D.C. was organized in 1842, though observations had been taken at a temporary observatory for some few years previously. Since 1861, valuable work has been continuously done there, though until 1893, when a new observatory was opened in a better position, the situation of the Naval Observatory was too near the Potomac River. In the near neighborhood was the first astrophysical observatory of the Smithsonian Institution, and not far away the Jesuit College of Georgetown has an observatory founded also in 1842. Of the many observatories attached to American colleges, Harvard, though until recently far in advance of any other, is not the oldest, since it dates back only to 1839, whereas Yale had an observatory as long ago as 1830. Princeton has two, much more recent, and Chicago, before the opening of the Yerkes Observatory in 1897, was provided with the Dearborn, built by subscription in 1862, and also the Kenwood Observatory. The first observatory founded by public subscription in the United States was at Cincinnati, in 1842, removed in 1873 to Mount Lookout. It is consistent with American methods to move an observatory as soon as its position is proved to be suffering from climatic conditions or interfered with by buildings, smoke, or railway vibrations, and it is being continually preached by their men of science that it is worthwhile to spend much time and money in choosing the location for an observatory. Yerkes Observatory, for instance, is some 80 miles distant from Chicago. Professor Lowell has at last settled down at Flagstaff, Arizona, after trying to find an ideal spot, and quite recently the Smithsonian Institution, finding the neighborhood of Washington unsuited for some of its purposes, has founded another astrophysical observatory at Mount Wilson, California, more especially for solar physics. We shall have occasion to refer to many of the observatories in connection with the work done, so we must not attempt a full account of them. 
it must not be supposed that the United States stands alone in multiplying observatories, though its vast extent and the wealth of energy of its people have rendered it conspicuous in that way. The British and European universities have also their share of observatories. Oxford, Cambridge, Dublin, Durham, Glasgow, Bonn, Göttingen, Kernisberg, Leipzig, Strasbourg, Prague, Krakow, Coimbra, Turin, Padua, Madrid, Bologna, Helsingfors, Dorpat, Warsaw, Moscow, Kassan, Uppsala, Lund, Christiania, Leiden, Utrecht, and many others are equipped in greater or lesser degree, and there are many royal observatories in addition to Greenwich, such as Edinburgh, Berlin, Kiel, Munich, Vienna, Budapest, Madrid, Lisbon, Naples, Palermo, and Brussels. Europe can also show many public and private observatories that do not come under either of these classes, some naval observatories and some geodetic. There are also observatories in Africa, besides the Royal Observatory at Cape Town, at Durban, Algiers, and a recent foundation at Helvan in Egypt. India and Australia are also doing good work. At Madras, for instance, Sydney, Melbourne, and Perth, and there is a flourishing observatory at Tokyo University, Japan. Private observatories not connected with any university or institution have also steadily increased in numbers, although in many notable cases the death of the founder means the removal or discontinuance of the observatory. For instance, the instruments of Baron de Egelhardt, late of Dresden, form the principal equipment of the Kassan Observatory, while no one now works on the sites occupied by Herschel or LaSalle, or to mention a recent loss, Dr. Isaac Roberts. Few observatory buildings are on the scale of lavish magnificence of Polkova, but, although perhaps more regard is paid to the practical details of pier foundations, ventilation, ease of manipulation of domes, and such matters than to the purely architectural point of view. It cannot be said that modern buildings compare unfavorably, even in appearance with older ones. In equipment, they are manifestly superior. We have seen how the Koningsberg heliometer yielded pride of place to the great Polkova refractor, but the advance in light-grasping power since Struve's time has been very great, and at times exceedingly rapid. The 40-inch refractor of the Yerkes Observatory represents the most powerful instrument of its kind, its successful completion in 1897 having ended the nine-year supremacy of the Lick 36-inch refractor. Other large telescopes of the refracting type are the 33-inch at Moudon, Paris, 31-inch at Potsdam, 30-inch at Nice, 30-inch at Polkova, 29-inch at Paris, 28-inch at Greenwich, 27-inch at Vienna, 26-inch at Greenwich, 26-inch at Washington, 26-inch at University of Virginia, and the 25-inch, the first of the large refractors constructed in 1870 for R.S. Newell of Gateshead, and since presented to Cambridge University, where his son, H.F. Newell, is working with it. The Paris Exhibition of 1900 was equipped with a refractor, theoretically far in advance of any of these, with an aperture of 49 inches. But it could not be used as an ordinary equatorial owing to the great weight that would have to be moved, and the consequent strain of its parts, so that it was arranged in a horizontal position 
in conjunction with a large plane reflector whose motion should allow any desired object to be seen. The instrument was not a great success, wherein the predictions of astronomers were verified. The greatest recent French invention, in connection with refractors, has to do not with the size, but with the mounting. Louis' Equatorial Cudé is now the standard type for French equatorials and has been recently introduced into Cambridge University. It has the great advantage that the observer need not move at all, a result achieved by two reflectors which bring rays from any desired region in space to a direction parallel to the main axis of the instrument. Refractors are not the only telescopes, however, nor equatorials the only form of mounting. No telescope approaches in actual size the great Parsonstown reflector of six feet aperture, erected by Lord Rosa in 1845. But one of five feet has recently been provided for Harvard College Observatory. And though for many purposes, notably the discovery of faint nebulae, the reflector has an advantage over the refractor, since so much light is absorbed in the latter in transmission through the object glass. The balance of opinion in general inclines to the refractor, as on the whole. The more effective form, though most large observatories are equipped with reflectors for special purposes, mainly photographic. In regard to instruments for fundamental purposes rather than for the physical and differential observations for which an equatorial is suited, there have been equally great advances. In size, it is considered the limit of expediency has already been reached, if not passed, since the mounting of the Greenwich Transit Circle, aperture, rather more than eight inches, in 1850, very few meridian instruments with apertures greater than six inches have been constructed. This is, however, largely due to the consideration that fundamental catalogues are not produced by many observatories, and that for the single purpose of time determination, large apertures are unnecessary. And it is also maintained by some authorities that the great essential for fundamental observations of great accuracy is an instrument strictly reversible in all its parts, so that great size involving great weight is a distinct drawback. Without going deeply into this controversial subject, it may be briefly noted that instruments cannot be constructed free from the possibility of residual errors of adjustment, for which observations must be corrected. The point at issue is whether this should be done by increasing the stability of the instrument and determining the actual amount of the residual errors on the assumption that under such conditions they are not liable to capricious alteration, or whether many of the corrections should be rendered apparently unnecessary by adopting the reversible instrument and taking all observations in both positions on the assumption that all the sources of error which change sign on reversing will disappear in the mean result. It is unsafe to dogmatize, but it can hardly be denied that in each case the assumption, though plausible, is not always justified, so that the question remains undecided. The great series of Greenwich catalogues, and many others, are obtained with non-reversible instruments, but an attempt is being made at the other Admiralty Observatory at the Cape of Good Hope to justify the reversible transit instrument on a large scale with highly elaborate precautions to ensure symmetry not only in the telescope itself, 
but in the observing room the shutter openings and other arrangements being designed to reduce errors which half a century ago were either not thought of or deemed insignificant in comparison with the probable error of an observation of instruments similar to the transit circle may be mentioned the transit in the prime vertical with axis north and south instead of east and west of which the most important was established at polkova and the modern altazimuth which is really a reversible transit circle which can be used in the meridian or the prime vertical or any intermediate azimuth of instruments for a special purpose there have been several from time to time the greenwich water telescope was constructed for the express purpose of testing a theory that aberration was modified by refraction through an absorbing medium such as a lens having conclusively decided the question in the negative the use of the instrument was discontinued the reflex zenith tube was invented to determine by observation of gamma draconis the same star used by bradley for the same purpose the constants of aberration and precession and incidentally the parallax of the star observations were gradually discontinued as they resulted in an impossible negative parallax but since the discovery of the latitude variation which accounted for the anomaly they have once more formed part of the routine at greenwich other stars close to the zenith being observed in addition to the gamma draconis for some purposes an instrument revolving about a vertical axis is desirable but owing to mechanical difficulties the simplest way of obtaining this without having errors continuously varying from one azimuth to another as they might be expected to do with the universal transit circle or modern altazimuth has been found in the almacantar floating in mercury a modern instance of which may be found at durham observatory other forms of telescope mounting may have to be referred to under other sections but we must pass on to the next item in the schedule noting by the way that the increased effectiveness of the modern instrument is largely due to scientific improvements in the manufacture of glass at jena and saxony and elsewhere a great saving of time in meridian observing was made by the american invention of the galvanic chronograph so that the observer instead of entering in his book the time of decimals of a second at which a star passed each wire in his instrument records the instant electrically so that the times can be read off at leisure instead of using the precious moments of a fine night for such mechanical operations there are various forms of chronograph in most of which the seconds or alternate seconds from a standard clock form points of reference either by pricking the paper on a revolving drum or by marking it with dots or by regular deflections of an otherwise continuous trace of a pen the observer's signals giving intermediate points or deflections there is also a printing chronograph invented by another american professor g w howe many developments are due to the advance in astronomical photography and in spectroscopy but we cannot deal with them here end of chapter fifteen